You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. It's just profound to me that the people who are about to kill Jesus are exalting themselves as not being as unrighteous or willing to shed innocent blood as the previous generation. You testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. In Hebrew, he would have been saying, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim. And this literally means city of peace, city of peace. Who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For, or because, I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In these last three verses, 37, 38, and 39, some remarkable and profound truths are emerging. Jesus says, O city of peace, O city of peace, I wanted to bring your children under my loving care. I'm paraphrasing. This is the God of our salvation speaking. This is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the bright and morning star, the door and means and substance of salvation talking to us. And he says, I wanted to gather your children together as a mother hen gathers the chicks under her wings. But then he tells what the problem was. He says, you were unwilling. 
I don't know what Reformed theology does with this except dance around it. But in this scenario, we see that God wanted to do something through Christ. And because of human will, that something did not occur. And that something would have been peace, shalom, salvation. And then he says, Behold, your house, your temple, your dwelling, is going to be left to you desolate because you will no longer see my face until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by this, he means that the only thing that fills the house of God with glory is the presence of God. In Hebrew, the same as the face of God. And so if we're not experiencing the presence of God, we are desolate. We are experiencing desolation. The worst desolation that can come is for the Lord to lift His presence, His glory, that certainty of His nearness as we sing or make music or as we pray. The nearness of God is our good. And he says, your house is going to be emptied. Your house is going to be desolate, devoid of glory, devoid of his presence, because you will not say, blessed is he who comes in the anoma, the authority, the name of the Lord. And that's what this word is here that he's using. He's obviously quoting from Psalms, but when he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he's using the word anoma. And that word is translated as name, but also as cause or authority. Authority is its first definition, believe it or not. So he's saying, because you can't accept and give a blessing to the authority of God, or to the one who comes in God's authority, you're not going to experience God's presence. You're going to experience desolation. This is a troubling scripture, but we have to look at it from a personal standpoint. We are going to experience, whether in our churches or in our families or in our personal lives, we are going to experience spiritual emptiness and desolation until we bend our knee and bow and say, blessed is he who comes in the authority of the Lord. I think that the flesh hates he who comes in the authority of the Lord. Because from the Garden of Eden until now, sin can be described as a contest between two authorities. The authority of human will or the authority of God's will. The bulema, the design, the plan of the man, or the bulema design and plan of God. He's just shown how this authority is rejected when he says, I wanted to gather you, but you were unwilling. Well, there is a rejection of God's authority. Jesus has already said elsewhere, he says, if one comes in his own name, you will receive him. But because I come in the name of another, you will not receive me. And this again can be translated, if one comes in his own authority, you will receive him. 
But if somebody comes in the name or authority of God, you won't receive him. You just think about it. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, I had an idea. It's not anything special, but it's a thought. You know, I'm just going to throw it out there. I think that it would make a lot of sense for you to consider a different kind of work and maybe quit engaging in those activities and pursue this. It would really improve your happiness overall. Most Americans are going to smile and, you know, even if they disagree, they're going to thank him. Hey, I'll take it under advisement. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for thinking of me. Now, imagine a pastor comes and says, brother, I feel like the Lord spoke to me and you need to change something in your life. Who are you to tell me that I need to change anything? If somebody comes in their own name as a suggestion, ideas, you know, yeah, we've got room for that. Because it's just one little autonomous God throwing out another idea to another autonomous little God. But if somebody says it's God's will, ooh, that, we can't abide that. We don't like that. We're going to say things like, that's just your interpretation. Or we're going to say things like, who do you think you are? Isn't that what they said to Moses back in the day? Moses, you have gone too far. Why do you think you're better than the rest of us? Are you more holy than us? But Jesus says, you won't see my face. You won't experience God's presence, is what that means, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Life can humble our pride. And when life humbles our pride, our deity kind of diminishes. Our, our competition with God kind of subsides. And life can, can put us in a place of such brokenness, such hurt, such bereavement, that we really will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We don't care if it's a hard word. We don't care if it's a soft word. We don't care who the messenger is. We can get to the place where we just say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I remember the story of um, Joram, son of Ahab, when he got the Edomite king and the Judean king, Jehoshaphat, to go on a campaign with him. God didn't bless it. And they got their armies together and they went out in the middle of nowhere and they got on the backside of a desert and they ran out of food and they ran out of water and they hadn't even engaged the enemy yet. And they were all about to die because they did not have provisions to get them back to where they should have stayed. <laughs> and uh, Joram's coming up with ideas and the Edomite king is coming up with some ideas, but Jehoshaphat is troubled. Jehoshaphat sees the telltale signs that things are not as they should be and that we're not going to solve a fleshly carnal dilemma by adding more fleshly carnal solutions to it. And so Jehoshaphat, while they're discussing everything, Jehoshaphat says, um, <clears throat> excuse me, is there not a prophet of Yahweh around here? And uh, Joram says, well, <laughs> there is, but I hate what he says. <laughs> He always talks bad about me. I'm paraphrasing. There's one, he says. So Jehoshaphat says, please send for him. 
what do we have here? We have somebody who stepped out in their own strength, Jehoshaphat, with these other two kings, stepped out in their own wisdom, stepped out in their own confidence. But they got to a place where they lost hubris and confidence in the flesh, and they felt that hunger for God's word. And Jehoshaphat, at least, came to the place where he could say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they bring Elisha the prophet, and he's the one who's coming in the name of the Lord here. And when Elisha shows up, he doesn't greet them very cordially. (laughs) He says to Joram, the son of Ahab, he says, If it weren't for this guy, Jehoshaphat, you wouldn't even see my face. Notice that Joram didn't ask for anybody who comes in the name of the Lord, only Jehoshaphat. And Elisha doesn't want to be around these guys, but he respects Jehoshaphat. And so he says, could you send a musician to play so that I can prophesy? And in this, you almost get the feeling that the environment is so hostile to the Word of God. It's so counter to the grace of God, that the prophet doesn't feel that he can begin to move in God's grace. And so he needs something to kind of drown out the opinions, the criticisms, the pride of Joram and the king of Edom. When the harpist begins to play, the prophet begins to prophesy, and and he tells him to make the valley full of ditches, and tomorrow it'll be full of water. It's a beautiful miracle, and and there's tons to be inspired about. I've preached about that before. But this is an example of someone getting to the place where they can say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is the core problem with why the Jews of Jesus' day did not receive him. Every conflict they had, whether about the Sabbath or the law, or cleansing the temple. Every conflict they ever had about theology, every conflict with Jesus that the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and teachers of the law ever had was a conflict of authority. They didn't want someone to come and say this was God's will. And They didn't mind ideas. They could take ideas all day long. But you see, Jesus came with power. He came with miracles. He came with fruit. He came with signs. He came with wonders. And so they couldn't just treat him as another idea. Remember when they decided in earnest to kill the Lord Jesus? When he raised Lazarus from the dead. When he raised Lazarus from the dead... That's when they decided, okay, we're going to go ahead and kill this guy. Why is that? They said, because if we don't stop him, we will lose our place and our nation. There's an urgency in that. They got to stop this thing. Because if not, he's going to make a fool out of us. And we're going to lose all the ground we've gained. I don't know exactly what they were thinking. But I know they saw power. They saw the power of God working behind a teaching that they were unwilling to accept. And so they had to stop it. And I don't really think it's any different today. I think that the essence of repentance 
is moving self-will off the throne of human life. And the fruit of repentance is acknowledging and accepting he who comes in the name of the Lord. The fruit of having removed self from the throne is the ability to let Christ sit on the throne. I was sharing with some folks the other night about how we believe that salvation comes through a relationship with God. Not a one-time encounter, but an ongoing relationship. And what is at the heart of the word relationship? Is it not the word relate? And so salvation has got to entail transcending the barriers that block communication between the divine and the mortal. That's what Jesus came to do. He came and, and brought the God who was far off, who we had never seen at any time, who had given His law at Sinai, but whose heart was still obscure to us, and Jesus took the veil away. No one has seen God at any time but the only begotten Son of God in the bosom of the Father. He has revealed Him. He has explained Him. He has made Him known. So that later the apostles would say, that which our eyes have seen and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, this we declare to you. You notice that they're not trying to declare a concept. They're trying to, to use words to connect to a relationship, to an experience with God, not merely thoughts or concepts about Him. You cannot have a relationship with God unless the barriers that prevent communication between mortal and divinity are broken down. We have to understand that Jesus tells the woman at the well, God is spirit. And so if we're going to relate to him, we're going to relate to him on his terms. If he is spirit, we're not going to relate to him in, through the medium of the flesh. We're going to relate to him through the medium of the spirit. Thank you, Jesus. How do we break down these barriers? How do we establish communication between us and God? Well, a lot of times we're aware of our part, but a relationship that is one-sided is not a relationship at all. In Proverbs, he says, when I stretched out my hand and you paid no attention, I'm going to respond such that when you stretch out your hand, I'm going to pay no attention. And in this equation, he's telling us it's got to be two-sided. So we know how we're supposed to relate to God, or we think we're, we know how we're supposed to relate to Him. We petition God with prayers, right? We praise Him with songs and voice of thanksgiving. We even worship Him in our work and our labor. We serve Him in the efforts to love and serve others. But especially through prayer and song and praise, we send communication to God. Picture so many emails flying toward heaven. But then how does God speak back to us? What is the primary mode by which he responds and reciprocates that communication that would otherwise be one-sided on our part? 
How does God speak back to us? How does he communicate to us? Well, most Christians say, well, through the word, through the word. Well, I agree, but remember what Peter said. The apostle Peter made this statement. He said, know this first of all, that no scripture is of private interpretation, but the holy men of old wrote it as they were carried along by the spirit. And by this, he tells us that you have to interpret Scripture the way Scripture was written. You have to be carried along by the Spirit. So even Scripture is not going to be a substitute. You can't read Scripture in your head. You've got to read Scripture with your understanding, but you've got to let yourself be carried along by the Holy Spirit, or else it's of private interpretation, according to Peter. So when we read Scripture, it's not just considering propositional truths or concepts or factoids about God and what he did or how he, how he behaves or what his character is. We're believing that God would anoint it somehow, that there would be an unction, a feeling that would come into it and lift off the page those words that are most salient, most powerful, that somehow our hearts would burn within us concerning the words that he is wanting to communicate. But the Bible doesn't even emphasize the reading of Scripture as the primary mode of relationship between us and God. So what are some of the other modes? Well, God is going to speak to us in our hearts. Somebody says, how does that work? How does God speak to you in your heart? Well, to me, it's a conviction. It's when a thought comes that is more than a thought, but it's a thought and a feeling and a conviction all at once. It kind of settles on you and it's accompanied by a weight or a presence that you know or you're familiar is the presence of God. God's going to speak to us in that way. He's going to speak to us in our thoughts, in our feelings. The psalmist says that God spoke to him while he laid upon his bed at night. So God speaks to us in this way and we praise God. So we've gotten two ways so far. He speaks to us through his word and he speaks to us in our feelings, in our thoughts throughout the day. Now, if we're not attentive to either of these modes, then the relationship breaks down. But what are some of the other ways that God speaks to us? What are some other primary ways that God speaks to his people? If you were to go through the, the whole Bible and just take out the words like this, take out the phrase, and the word of the Lord came. How many times would that word be coming through the mouth of a man or a woman? I would challenge you that it's more than 90, more than 95% of the time. So if we believe the Bible, the majority, if we just look at the Bible, what occurs in the Bible, the majority of what God communicates comes through people. It may come directly to one and then spread to the others. I accept that. But the primary mode was never just to give someone a word for them privately, but was to give them a word for everyone. So I think this is a primary expression of God in the church. Everybody with me so far? So think about 1 Peter 4.10, where he says, 
as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, minister God's grace in its various forms. And he goes on, he says, he who serves with the dunamis, the strength, the power that God provides. Whoever speaks, let him speak as the very oracle of God. We all know that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. But he tells us in 1 Peter 4.10 that God's grace is dispensed through human vessels. Don't lose our starting scripture. You won't feel God's presence or his nearness until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, we all want this privatized salvation that involves no one but ourselves and God. But that's a figment. That's an imagination. So when Paul is on the road to Damascus and he is struck down and blinded by a great light. And unlike most of us, he attains a direct audience with the Lord Jesus himself with an audible, visceral expression. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, let's stop right there. It says that he went with letters against the churches to arrest Christians. That's who he was persecuting. He was persecuting the church. But Jesus makes no distinction between himself and his body. That's a distinction in our minds only. He says, when you've done it under the least of these, you've done it unto me. He calls the body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So when Paul is attacking the church, Paul is attacking Jesus. Paul's laying there on his back, blinded, talking to Jesus in the first person. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, at least he's got this audience with Christ. The one who died for him. The Alpha and the Omega. The one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily stands over the bedecked Paul and he's answering his questions. Does Jesus give Paul the plan of salvation? Does he tell him what he must do to be saved? Certainly he could have. Or does he have a greater plan in mind? Is he strategically focused on connecting people one with another and building a body and not just an individual. And so he says to Paul, go to the street called Straight. And a fallible man who only has a little bit of the spirit, who makes mistakes, who has to brush his teeth in the morning, probably, is going to come and tell you what you must do to be saved. Why, Jesus, I'm right here with you. You got my attention. Let's just do it like this. No, 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 no. God wants Paul to know that he is dependent on the body. Even his relationship with God is tied into the body of Christ. So the third and primary mode 
by which God speaks to us is in the context of his body and through other brothers and sisters. This is why he says wherever two or three, doesn't say wherever one is gathered in my name, but whenever two or three are gathered in my name, my authority, my onoma, there I am in the midst of them. So another example is Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, but he's a righteous, caring man. And he seems to want a relationship with God. And so the Bible tells us, or actually the angel tells us, that Cornelius prayed and his prayers stacked up and built up a memorial before God. So you need a picture a memorial in their day, like in ours, would typically be like a tall pillar or an obelisk and so on and so forth. Oftentimes built out of stone or brick. Hallelujah. So the angel compliments Cornelius and says, your prayers have been heard. Your alms, that's his, his sacrificial giving, and your prayers have built up like a memorial before God. Cornelius is down on earth, but his prayers are stacking one on top of another until he's got this obelisk memorial puncturing through the floor of heaven. It's a visualization, but you get it. At last, kaboom, an angel stands before him and tells him his prayers have been answered. The guy must have been pretty excited. This is it. This is what I've been waiting for. I believe that if I sought the living God with all my heart, even though I was a Gentile, he would answer. And finally, he's answered me. I've got an angel in my living room. You know where I'm going. The angel says, uh, <clears throat> there's this guy. And I need you to send somebody to travel to another town and wake this guy up from a nap. He's having a dream where God's trying to convince him that you're not a four-footed crocodile. He is going to tell you what you must do to be saved. Words by which you and your household will be saved. I mean, this is remarkable because in both of these instances, we have a direct contact with heaven and God says, great, you got my attention. Now I'm going to connect you with a fallible, imperfect man. And does he not show us his design, his intent in that? And so I say this. We've got to change the way we listen. Pay all the more earnest heed to how you listen and to the things you have heard, to quote from Mark and also the book of Hebrews, so that we won't drift away. We send up petitions, but God sends a Peter. We make contact with Jesus, but God sends an Ananias to fulfill the need we sought from him. He is trying to connect us one to another. He is not wanting to give us a one-off encounter that we can brag about for the rest of our lives. He's wanting to connect us to the body of Christ. In short, he's wanting a humility to reside in our hearts and a hunger and a desperation such that we can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When you enter a meeting with that in your heart, God is going to speak to you. When you listen to praise with that in your heart, God is going to speak to you through a song. When you open your Bible, 
or when you get on your knees with that in your heart, God is going to speak to you. But you've got to even approach your brother, your friend, your pastor, your father, your mother, and say in your heart, blessed is anyone who would dare to come in the authority of the Lord. What is the Lord's authority? It's love and it's truth. That's the only authority that exists in the body of Christ, love and truth. If it's not proven by love and truth, it has no power of persuasion for any of us. But it's the only authority that is not rooted in brute force or manipulation. All other authorities are either manipulation or coercion. But the authority of God, it's not like that. Now the sad thing is, everything in your flesh predisposes you to reject God's authority. When Satan tempted Eve in the garden, he didn't say, I'll be your God and I'll teach you good and evil instead of Yahweh. He didn't say that. He said, you'll be his God. So the most coercive, manipulative authorities in the world get you to reject God's authority by telling you you can be your own God. By lying to you, they are exploiting you. They are subjugating you with deceit. So the world says, hate the authority of God. It's awful. It's oppressive. Your flesh says, reject the authority of God. You're not free. You're not a free agent. You're not autonomous if you're going to submit to anyone. Satan says, be your own God. I'm not interested in being your God. You be your own God. But reject God's authority. But the Lord says, you're going to submit. You're going to submit to peer pressure as a God. You're going to submit to fear as a God. You're going to submit to your impulses and appetites as a God. You're going to submit to spiritual forces of wickedness as gods. Or you're going to submit to the Lamb of God who hung naked on a cross and says, come unto me, take my yoke upon you and learn. But you're going to submit. Everyone else says be free. He says submit, but know who you're submitting to. Submit to love. Submit to truth. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And God's presence will be in your house. His nearness will be your good.
close to you never let me go I lay it all down again just to hear you say that I'm your friend you are my desire no one else will do for nothing else can take the place to feel 